this episode, Patrick McLaughlin, a senior research fellow and director of policy analytics here at Mercatus, chats about the latest economic situation report with Dr. Bruce Yandel, who is a distinguished adjunct fellow here at Mercatus. They discuss recession predictions, federal debt, the role of money in the economy, and much more. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. And be sure to check out Bruce's report at the link in the show notes. Hi, this is Patrick McLaughlin. I am a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And I'm here once again to talk to the esteemed Bruce Yandel, who's joining us to talk about his quarterly situation report. Let's jump right into it, Bruce. Thank you for joining me. Let me start with a question. Since your last report, which you put out in June, the Commerce Department came out with some optimistic estimates for real GDP growth. And you also point out that even the Federal Reserve Board economists are increasingly optimistic. Talk about that for a little bit, maybe contrast it with our expectations in maybe a year ago. Yes, good. Good to be with you, Patrick. You know, we are getting news that while it is not strong in terms of economic growth, it's economic growth. It's positive. It feels good. And considering where we've been, we can have a little bit of celebration about it. But yes, the Commerce Department came in. Their first quarter GDP growth was came in at two. When they gave the first estimate for the second quarter, they raised it to 2.6. Then long about a week ago, they brought that down back to two. So in a sense, we've got a flat 2% growth economy, but I would suggest the prospects for the ending quarter are brighter than 2%. The drivers, you might say, tend to be all of the above. That is, there, there isn't a weak sector in the economy. There's some very strong ones, healthcare, tourism, people are back on the road again, retail sales are strong. And there's a pretty good shot in the arm, it appears, that is coming from the Inflation Reduction Act, infrastructure, expansion, federal monies, large amounts, high levels of commercial construction activity. And so that's that's sort of the picture right now. If you probe into it, as you and I and, and people in our tribe tend to do, you can identify some reasons to think things are going to slow. One of those is a sharp reduction in the hiring of temporary help. Temporary help hires are declining markedly. New job openings are declining sharply, but we still have about 1.7 job openings for every unemployed person. But there's some vulnerability out there. But still, for those bloodhounds that are looking for recession, they've got to keep sniffing. Don't think we'll hear them bark for a while. So the recession, should it come, keeps on getting pushed off to some point down the road. And I, and I think you're you're sticking with the prediction that it'll probably be early next year. I think that's what you wrote in the June report. And, and I think you're reiterating that. Yes. Now and and a lot of other economists, it seems, are are thinking the same thing that it's it's going to hit at some point. We just keep on pushing it off, and 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 as you say, one of the 
ways in which we're pushing it off is with some federal spending. Can you talk about how that is related to a recent downgrade to the rating that the U.S., I guess, government bonds, if that's the case, is getting from Fitch's. We've got downgraded from AAA to AA+. What does that mean, and how is that related yes, to federal yes. spending? Well, there are, there are three rating agencies who are in the business of assigning numbers, AAA, AA, and worse, to debt for the sovereign nations of the world, as well as for corporations and other entities that sell bonds and issue debt. Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch's. Fitch's recently reduced their rating from AAA to AA+, which puts us in the company of Canada and France and Belgium and Finland and a number of other pretty strong countries. But it was sort of shocking when they did this, particularly in the halls of the White House, when you're saying everything is going well with Bidenomics, as the term has been coined, and then comes a rating agency saying, we are worried about your debt. Whoa, let's talk about that some. The, but, but the point I think that's important to note here is that Fitch's and the other rating agencies, their rating changes are not just based on a short-run picture. Maybe Bidenomics is good. Maybe it's not good. That's a question we could explore. But they were not rating Bidenomics. They were looking back to administrations with respect to the run-up in debt, deficits, standoffs in Congress as to whether we will allow the government to shut down and default. And in the most recent one, we had a former president saying, I recommend we default. That may be what it will take for us to get our house in order. So it was a longer run concern and, and included in their statement was concern about the January insurrection, questions about America's strength as a democracy. But let's not forget AA plus is a pretty strong credit agency rating. But that's sort of the story there. Thus far, the other agencies have not reduced their rating from AAA. There's probably some concern about the soundness of monetary policy mixed in there as well, I imagine. It's inflation, as everyone knows, is a, a phenomenon that we're worried about in the U.S. these days, as well as, as many of these other countries that are in the the double A plus category or even triple A perhaps category. But you have done a wonderful job, in my opinion, of showing what we should really be thinking about when it comes to inflation, which is the supply of money in our economy. And in, in my opinion, if you listeners, if you haven't looked at this latest report, Bruce has a, a, a yet another wonderful figure in there, which shows M2, which I'm going to ask you to talk about here, Bruce, it shows this this measure of monetary money supply, and then it shows inflation, right? Why don't you go ahead and talk about that figure, Bruce, and what it tells us? Sure. And, and let me go back to something you mentioned there as you were opening this topic and Fitch's. There is certainly a concern, I think, that's buried in the Fitch's analysis and anybody else's analysis of our country's financial viability about the deficits. 
and the run-up in interest rates. You mentioned the Fed. The Fed is dedicated to bringing inflation down, whatever it takes, the most recent statements. They are not going to sleep at the switch. We have seen increases in interest rates now. We're right at five and a quarter. We've seen the mortgage rates pop up to 7%. And incidentally, I think that's going to be driving the slowdown that we will be seeing in our economy on into next year. But the relationship between the money supply growth and growth in inflation, whether we're using the CPI or some other measure, is one that's been pretty well established over a long period of time. There's more to the story. But I think the bottom line says money matters. If you get a huge growth in the money supply, then with a lag, sometimes it takes a year, sometimes longer, you will see a response in the economy of more money chasing goods, and the goods production does not get ahead of the money production, and then you see a rise in the price level. The figure that you referred to in the chart is comparing and mapping two growth rates, the growth rate of M2, money supply in the economy, and the growth rate of the CPI. Those two figures look a lot alike with a lag of better than 12 months. And the growth in money supply is now negative. The Fed has hit the brakes and they keep, they're keeping their foot on the brakes. So we're getting negative growth in money. CPI measured inflation has been coming down almost systematically. It stopped in its down movement this last month by a little bit. But I would suggest that just looking at that relationship long about January or February, I think we will see the Fed achieving its target of 2% growth in the CPI or one other measure, which they prefer. But nonetheless, I think the relationship is still working. Now, that doesn't say there will be a recession, but it does say things will slow in some sector of the economy. And it seems to me it will have to be the most interest rate sensitive sector of all, which is housing. To some degree, you know, you would think their policymakers would be taking a victory lap. To some degree, right? Now, inflation is being wrestled under control. And, and, and to also to some degree, you, you do hear some policymakers taking victory laps. But when they when they talk about inflation, I, I don't think we really hear them talking about the money supply, which I agree with you, Bruce. This seems to be a great explanation. But then again, I'm in the tribe, as you call it. I'm an economist. Right. But policymakers, they talk about things like the war in Ukraine and corporate greed, and they don't emphasize the role of, of money in the economy. Can can you explain that? Well, you're, but you're, you're right on. That is, and the Fed itself uh, at each of their press conferences and the reports that they issue after one of the meetings of the Federal Open Market Committee, which, which sets the interest rates and worries about inflation. In their reports, in their discussion, in their comments to the press, comments to the press coming out of the White House, it's all of the above that you mentioned. It's the war in Ukraine. And yes, that matters. That does something to the supply side of the economy. It's the run-up in, in energy prices. It's the run-up in food prices. 
It's climate change. It's unusual number of fires around the globe. And we could go on and on with a list. But no one ever suggests that it has to do with our monetary policy. Because in a sense, it would be pointing the finger back at government itself. This is something Mm. that government does. And it just seems to me that everyone should admit that money matters. And it's not everything, but it pays to keep your eyes. Like saying, keep your eye on the ball. It pays to keep your eye on money and what is happening in the economy. But so far, the other talk is the talk that commands uh, the, the minute on the evening news. Maybe it's also in part, it's just more tangible to talk about things like the war in Ukraine or or fires when there's smoke coming even to the East Coast occasionally. That's right. That's right. Shift gears a little bit here, Bruce. You devote a fascinating section of your report to the economy under the Truman administration, which was a while ago. Can you sketch out what America's post-World War II economy looked like and and then maybe Tell us what we can learn now from President Truman's approach then. Yes, and it turns out that there's something kind of interesting there, and I sort of stumbled into it. I'm somewhat of a, as you can tell, by Patrick, I'm somewhat of a pack rat. I keep a lot of books around and things that catch my eye, and I have a hard time parting with them. But I came across the first economic report of the president, 1947, and I was reading that report. And I discovered that it it was done every six months. This was President Truman. We got legislation that year setting up the Council of Economic Advisors and legislation saying there shall be a report given to the American people about the economy. And Truman says, okay, you like that? Well, I'm going to do one every six months. So I've got both of those reports. It's the only time we've had an economic report done every six months, the only president who's ever done that. And in addition to that, Mr. Truman did something else interesting. Congress had set up the Joint Economic Committee in Congress, bipartisan. And Truman said, and I want the Joint Economic Committee to review the report and criticize it because our report on the economy should be tested by other economists. Nobody has done that since. So so just to clarify, there's no sort of review for the current economic report to the president, and there hasn't been since since Truman? That's right. Now, there there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people who read every word and test every item of data. It is probably the most reviewed and edited document known to man. Uh, uh, it is, I would suggest, bulletproof. But we both know that you can uh, you can look at certain things and choose not to look at others, or you can choose to talk about monetary economics or not choose to. And so there's always room for review and criticism. And so that was sort of interesting. But the thing that's more interesting, Truman comes in at the end of World War II, and so we have an economy that is making painful and rapid adjustment to millions of people returning home. So we have a flood of people looking for work. We have an unemployment rate there in 1948, just about equal to our unemployment rate today. 
Three point. We are at three point eight now. Three point, okay. It was three point four, three point five back then. Tight labor market. People had a lot of savings accounts. They were cashing in their war bonds. They were going shopping, and so we had what should be called runaway inflation there in '48. The inflation rate, CPI estimated measure, nineteen percent. Our high point recently is nine, and our nine is down to three and headed south. Let's be optimistic here. So Truman's looking at an economy with tight labor markets, high inflation, a war has come to an end. We are looking at an economy where the COVID war has come to an end in a similar way. People have a lot of money chasing goods. And so Truman did something really on you. He's a Democrat. He's dealing with both houses of Congress being Republican. But he says, I want to have a special session of the United States Congress to focus on how we deal with inflation. Now, we have not done that in recent times. They have two separate sessions of Congress, bringing in, listening, and they make decisions to raise taxes. Let's slow this thing down. Truman wanted to put in price controls, and I would say, thank heavens, in their better judgment, they didn't do that. But they got busy getting the Fed involved in dealing with the problem, the money supply part of the problem. But in any case, they brought inflation down to 1.2% in 1950, where it had been 19% back about 1947-48. They worked on it. And and so that experience sort of left me with the idea, well, gee whiz, if this is something we really want to do something about, why hasn't someone called a special session of Congress? Well, you could say that about a lot of issues that we're dealing with, immigration, so on and so forth. But I think there's a lesson to be learned from that experience. President Truman either actively embraced a a humble stance right he he was he he accepted that his knowledge on how to deal with the problems at the time wasn't perhaps perfect or maybe it was just out of political necessity dealing with two republican chambers but either way the the outcome was a collaborative process as you describe and some some choices were made that ultimately handled the issues that the president wanted to deal with. I think that's a nice way to transition to another topic in your report, which is a discussion about the role of knowledge and in, in planning in markets overall. You you reference Friedrich Hayek's work, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. What did Hayek mean by fatal conceit and the knowledge problem? Well, I think you're right to characterize Harry Truman as sort of a man-on-the-street president, used to run a haberdashery shop in his private world, and now he's president. And so perhaps perhaps he was impressed with his own ignorance, which I think is a very useful thing Mm -hmm. for a president or a professor or anybody else. Anybody, (laughs) right. But but nonetheless, your point about Hayek did an article, I think it was published in 1948, a long time ago, and the article is titled, The Use of Knowledge in Society. Hayek makes a fundamental point that an economic system is a 
information system. It's a knowledge system. We are all connected by prices and markets, and prices communicate scarcities, and wages communicate desires for people to be employed, and how much I desire you to come to work. That information is flowing, and so we should guard and keep that information system happy and healthy rather than try to control it because man faces one fundamental problem in Hayek's view, and that is knowledge is inside the brains of every person on this globe, however many it is, all five billion of us, and the brains are not connected directly. So knowledge is dispersed, but the decisions we're trying to make are highly localized and highly specialized. And it was impossible for any one person to ever be able to gain command of enough knowledge on their own to even do something as simple as I suggest in my piece as making a paper clip. And by that, I mean from scratch. That makes it a very different problem. Oh, you say, make a paper clip? Well, I'll just pick up a piece of wire and bend it. And I'm saying, no, no, you've got to start with nothing. The iron ore, you got to make the steel, you got to make the on and on. And so when we look at something as simple as a paper clip, we realize there is a huge amount of complex knowledge that came together somehow so that we could get a little box of paper clips and pay 25 cents for them. And a lot of that knowledge was in other parts of the world, in other locations, people who speak different languages, but markets brought it together. And so getting to the issue that I was talking about, we have a president who there are people who are expressing concerns about our president and his age. He's 81. And pursuing office, hoping to serve another term, four more years. And so he was getting some questions about that from the press. And our president turned, and I thought he did a pretty good job of trying to defend himself. He says, look, I've got a lot of experience. I've got more experience at doing this job than anyone else who's announced so far. Well, one of the others is 77, but hey, I'm 81. So I've got a lot of experience. And then I think he made the mistake that I criticized him for. I know more than the average person. That's where I, in a sense, took him to task in my newsletter. Because the more, the older we are, the more experienced we are, I think it's the case for most people that we realize that we are more ignorant relatively than we have ever been because we have encountered countless mysteries along the way. I use that old saw, I'm not young enough to know everything. So that even if Mr. Biden or any other president could bring in the brightest and best, as they all attempt to do, and I would say they must do, and they say, let's get the best information we can and get it cornered over here on the table, get the economists, the engineers, anybody else, and we will decide what kind of automobiles the American people should have in the next 20 years, and we will subsidize the right choices. That decision will become obsolete the day they make it, is Hayek's point. Markets are continually reassessing 
what are the new technologies, something that didn't even exist when the smart people were in the room the day before shows up. That's the point, that knowledge is dispersed. We need to use it in specific instances. We best be humble about how much we know. It's best for us to talk in broad terms in terms of targets than to talk in specific terms in terms of choosing technologies, for example. So that Hayek referred to our tendencies to act as though we know a lot as a fatal conceit. This is the fatal conceit, which will inevitably cause us to make some costly decisions that we might regret later on. But still, we have to face this is the human struggle after all. That's very, very well put. To add a little bit of concrete policy making to, to the end of all of that, you know, you talk about subsidies. You just did talk about subsidies and the decision of, say, a, a blue ribbon commission supplemented with knowledge of engineers, et cetera, to subsidize a particular technology or, or industry. Well, we have chip subsidies that are running to the market right now in the U.S. and in, in other countries. And to your point, Bruce, I think you're saying, well, we've made this choice, but it's going to be in a very short amount of time probably the market's going to move on or the technology is going to move on and we will be subsidizing something that's not nearly as useful as we thought it was going to be when we made that initial choice. So the benefit won't be nearly as great as what we hoped for. Although we, you do point out there are some beneficiaries and those are the ones that receive the subsidies directly, right? The chip manufacturers. That's right. That's right. That is the process, process of picking winners. Yeah. And offering assistance to winners is a politically attractive process, particularly if you're one of the winners right. in the process. Yeah. Let's wrap up as we like to do with talking about what's been on your reading stand lately. Tell us why you rate Eric Larson's book, The Splendid and the Vile. What a wonderful title. At a perfect five out of five gold stars. Five-star book, I would say. It's the kind of book that I, without any hesitation, urge people to get their hands on. Or if you have a friend who loves to read, get them a copy of this book. First off, Larson is a wonderful writer, highly successful. He's turned out a lot of bestseller books. But this particular book is interesting to me in, in, in addition to it be, its being well-written. It's over a short period of time in Winston Churchill's life, a little bit better than one year. The book tells the story of Winston Churchill becoming prime minister from the day he became prime minister, that's sort of the beginning of the book, to Pearl Harbor, which is a little bit better than a year later. And so you could say roughly it's Churchill's first year in office. As Churchill is being sworn in, Adolf Hitler's army is invading the Low Countries. France has already fallen. He's into Belgium. War is going full force, face force. And Hitler has made it very clear that he would like for England to join, or at least not to resist. Let's, let's talk you into surrendering 
And if you don't like what I'm saying, I'm going to show you something about German technology that you haven't experienced before. We'll start open bomb bombing open cities in England. The bombs start falling, and they are huge. 7,000-pound bombs are falling in London that can destroy a city block. Now, the thing about the book that makes the description and how that affected people such a powerful story, the author uses diaries. There was a project in England in association with the war and the bombing where some public service agency encouraged ordinary people to keep diaries and then to share those later. And so Larson draws on lots of diaries. There are a lot of direct quotes. And so you're reading someone's description about what it was like to stop the birthday party as the bomb started falling and head for the shelters and I take my children down and we meet some wonderful people down there we've never met before. And you hear, you get an insight into what it's like. In addition to that, Hermann Goering, who was Hitler's air commandant, kept a magnificent diary where he's reporting and ruminating on all kinds of things. And so Larson brings in items out of Goering's diary. And so we get the reflections, the concerns, the hoopla coming from individual ordinary folks and big folks and highfalutin folks as the story goes on. Hitler continues to challenge Churchill. Let's sit down and negotiate a surrender. And Hitler hopes that he will get one so that he can focus his attention then on Russia. Meanwhile, Churchill is doing everything he can to entice President Franklin Roosevelt to help. And Roosevelt is facing a very reluctant Congress. Isolationists, let's don't get involved. So it's a story that is talking about two key people, Roosevelt, Churchill, World War II, the bombing of England in such a way, in such a terrible way, that as you read the book, you have to conclude there's no, this story cannot have a happy ending. And then comes Pearl Harbor, and that changes the mood of Congress, and the United States openly then supports. But it's, it's a marvelous story of personalities, ordinary people's insights, and the ability of a very powerful speaker Radio was the way of communicating. Churchill, the ability of a very powerful speaker to have large impact over an outcome. Hope you'll read it, Patrick. You definitely sold me on it. I will be picking it up soon. Well, thanks, Bruce, for joining me once again on this podcast and for this latest economic situation report. It's been my pleasure to host you. Great being with you. The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. And for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app.